In Mark chapter 7, verse 8, Jesus, in an interaction with or exchange with the religious leaders of his day, said this to them, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was saying this to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. What do you think Jesus meant by that? What was he getting at? What he was getting at was the tendency of men to set aside God's morality, God's ethics, God's principles, and in place of God's morality, we impose our own. That's what Jesus was getting at. Welcome to the Reformed Rant. You are listening to episode 56. Today is January 14th, and we have a hodgepodge of topics to cover today. So I'm going to do something a little bit different. Strap your seatbelt on because it's going to be a very turbulent ride. We are flying into some serious headwinds today. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I just as soon stay home. I was one of the chosen few to be born in Alabama. I'm just like my daddy's son. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. So we are talking today, this is exactly what we're doing in this episode today, and we are spending most of our time on a hodgepodge of different, um, of different topics. So let me get over to that agenda. We're going to open up with a Twitter post from a fellow by the name of Dr. Josh and a seriologist. He's an expert, has a PhD in studying ancient texts. Used to be a Christian. Don't know. Now, when I say used to be a Christian, we all know, uh, those of us from the Reformed world who understand that uh, to become a Christian is the work of God completely beginning to end. It is the work of the Holy Spirit on the individual, and that work is never wasted and never reversed. It's permanent. It you do not become a Christian the same way that you become uh, a convert to Judaism or Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism. Uh, you become a Christian as this as a result of the supernatural work of God on you. 
And so uh, Dr. Josh claims to have been a Christian at one time. We have a lot of atheists running around who make this claim. It's nothing personal. It's not a personal slight to Dr. Josh for me to say you were never a Christian. What that is is me saying this is what Christianity affirms, that to be born again, you cannot become unborn again. And to become a Christian is a supernatural work of God. I understand there are tons of versions out there of what Christianity supposedly is. Uh, But there's also millions of ignorant people in the world who are wrong. And those people who claim to be Christian who think that you you become a Christian as purely a choice, a decision, or an act of human will do not understand Christianity and the overwhelming majority of them are not Christians. Now, there are some people who have truly been converted who think badly about how you become a Christian, and the Holy Spirit will work on them and bring them out of that. Of that, I am confident. Dr. Josh, anyhow, asks the question, which group is worse for society? And the groups that... Dr. Josh is is focusing on are atheists or fundamentalist Christians. Now, Dr. Josh's followers on Twitter are, for the most part, a bunch of mindless atheists who will stop at nothing to prop up their atheism and to suppress the truth of God that's been given to them in their conscience and that stands in front of them every single day testifying and witnessing to the existence of the Creator. And God makes sure that that witness is there. Uh, So Dr. Josh asked this question. Now, I criticized Dr. Josh for this question, and my response tweet was basically the most dangerous group to society is the group that asked the question, which is the most dangerous group to society. Now, why, first of all, why ask this question to begin with? But secondly, why did I respond like that? And the reason I responded like that is because the question itself is a dangerous question to society. It's dangerous in the sense that, first of all, the, the 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 old adage, ideas have consequences. What are you going to do with the answer? Once you figure out which group is the most dangerous to society, historically speaking, what, what does humanity have the tendency to do to that group? Hmm. So here's, the, here's a, a few ways to think about this as a Christian when you see a question like that. First of all, What is a healthy society? Because the question itself implies a healthy society. What is your ideal society? And is that ideal society, does it comport with God's design for society? Hmm. So the question already presupposes that there is an ideal society. And guess what atheists cannot do? They cannot ground their ideal society in 
atheistic belief without being radically subjective and arbitrary. Which atheist will be the one to tell us what the ideal society is? You see, so if Dr. Josh asks this question and happens to be in the minority of atheists who believes that uh, opposing views should be tolerated and that that's the ideal society, he loses. And his question will be used by, let's say, the hostile militant atheists to suppress everyone else. Unintended consequences. But I don't think so. I think Dr. Josh has other things on his mind with, with the question. At least I'm, I'm honest. Is this the slippery slope fallacy that I'm committing? Well, you know, you could accuse me of that if you want to. But the funny thing is that on that Twitter feed, even though Dr. Josh was offended that I would say he's the most dangerous person to society, sure enough, before we could get hardly any anywhere into the, the thread, a guy whose name is Relief Belief says this, it's actually moderates. They can't think. They still commit evil for their God. They vote. And they provide cover for fundamentalists. And they indoctrinate their kids. So here's a guy already who is making my case for me. You ask this question, and guess what's going to happen? That's the, this group is dangerous to society. We, we shouldn't let them vote. We should minimize their numbers. We should uh, force them to accept pagan values. Those values that we think are ideal values in our ideal society. And oh yeah, by the way, these people indoctrinate their kids. So already you have an atheist stepping up pretending to tell others how to raise their own children. Slippery slope fallacy? I don't think so. I think ideas have consequences. They almost, almost always make their way from paper to reality. That is... The issue I have with Dr. Josh's tweets, and we are living in an age when these moral object, objections to Christianity are all around us. The pressure is enormous, and it's coming from every group you can imagine, and it's going to take up much of what I have to say today. All right, let's move to my next item on the agenda, which is Bradley Mason, one of my favorite characters of all time, my favorite Twitter characters. Recently, a man in Philadelphia, I think it was Philadelphia, pretty sure, um, was caught on video camera. They don't know the man's identity, but he hands a note to the clerk, says you have, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds. 
I'm sorry to have to do this. I have a sick kid at home, and he steals all the money from the register. And guys like Bradley Mason, Bradley Mason actually went out on Twitter to the man's defense and was critical of the system. In effect, blaming the man's violation of the divine command on society, on culture. This is what liberals do, folks. Sinners are not rebels against God. They're victims of their own circumstances. And Bradley Mason is OPC, claims to be reformed. And I can't find a reformed comment on his Twitter, or let's say this, a comment that I see as consistent with reformed theology on Twitter. There isn't a decent reformed man worth his salt who would ever ever justify the violation of the divine command for any reason ever. And Bradley Mason does it on Twitter without even flinching. And of course, when you point scripture out to these people, you're just a racist, cold-hearted, hateful person. Because scripture says, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30 and 31, Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house, everything. Oh no, that's harsh and mean. No, that's divine justice. That's the kind of justice God practices. So much for Bradley Mason and his Marxist, socialist, communist, left-leaning social justice heresy. On to John Harris's video. I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about this video, other than to say that, that John does great work, and this is some more great work from, from him on Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And the fact that Danny Aiken is running around, and Al Mohler, uh, by implication and inference, uh, denying that there are men employed at their seminaries that have a leftist, social justice, Marxist, Black liberation, liberation theology embracing perspective, point of view. And so John uh, apparently uh, got tired of hearing these rebuttals and thought, you know, the best thing to do is to just put it in their teeth, put it out there where everybody can see it and let them deny it then. And that's what John did. Uh, and he showed a number of men uh, from these seminaries, or at least from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, who are, out, including Danny Aiken, who are out there openly, openly extolling James Cone, extolling black liberation theology, teaching what is, without any question whatsoever, heresy. And so now the question is going to be, what will Danny Aiken and Al Mohler and, and, and uh, 
Russell Moore and the rest of these SBC evangelical elites do. Yeah, well, they'll just continue to do what they're, they're doing. They don't have the guts to stand up to the pressures of the culture, and they have absolutely no faith in God's ability to save his own elect or to preserve his own church. They think they have to do that work themselves. And if it means compromising everything Scripture says, then so be it. We're going to come back to that at the end of this at the end of this program. And if I'm sounding a little um, different, it is because I have had a bug for a little over a week. And um, I I'm, I'm, have recovered some, but I'm still not completely recovered. Item number four, uh, that uh, in this chaos, uh, this mass confusion, is, is James White. A couple of issues with James White. Uh, I've always had a problem with White's incredible inconsistency where Michael Brown is concerned. Michael Brown is a heretic. He is an outright heretic. I have his book, Let No One Deceive You. He's a heretic. Uh, I've watched his ministry for years. I've watched him defend the Laughing Revival. I've watched him defend heretic, heretic after heretic after heretic. I've watched him defend heresy after heresy after heresy. Somehow, James White, in his convoluted way of thinking, is able to wade through all of that, join hips, join Michael Brown at the hip, and uh, platform him as a brother in, in Christ. <sighs> well, recently, James White um, got a, a thorough spanking by uh, pulpit and pen and the likes of J.D. Hall and others for um, uh, his defense of Rosario Butterfield. Uh, J.D. Hall pointed out that Rosario Butterfield had an unbiblical view where the use of gender-neutral pronouns are concerned and her uh, propping up homosexual beliefs. Um, and James White just came unglued and accused J.D. Hall of slander. And so what did J.D. Hall and others on this side of the issue do, but do the very same thing John Harris did with Danny Aiken. Uh, published videos of Rosario Butterfield doing exactly what J.D. Hall said she did, endorsing the use of gender-neutral pronouns with homosexuals, calling it Christian hospitality. And now James White denied this initially and accused J.D. Hoff slander. Well, now that the videos are out there and Rosario Butterfield's position is out there, uh, it's my understanding that she's changing these things quietly behind the scenes, by the way. Um, what did James White do? Did he recant? Did he back up? Did he go, oops, whoops, well, I made a mistake. Sorry about that. Try not to let that happen again. None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. And that should be our response when we do make mistakes, not to double down. Well, James White didn't just double down. I mean, he didn't really double down. It seems like he may have changed his position on the use of gender-neutral pronouns with homosexuality. Hmm. Very, very interesting. 
And this is really quite shocking and extremely disturbing. But this is what modern American Christianity is, has come to with all these guys absolutely caving in. Not only that, James White happens to be over at Apologia Church. I always say, I always mispronounce their church because I'm used to saying Apologia the way that it's supposed to be pronounced. They don't. <clears throat> Jeff Durbin's world, where apparently there have been some, not just apparently, there have been secret recordings going on, um, and then at least one of those recordings published and recordings used for all kinds of crazy things. But look, here's the thing. And here's the really disturbing thing to me. James White has people who are going to support him despite the fact that he's changed his position on gender-neutral pronoun use for homosexuals. These same people would have said, when James was opposed to this, they would have said, Dr. White is right. You should not do this. Dr. White changes his position, and overnight, miraculously, oddly, so do they. And all his defenders continue to be his defenders. Now, I used to be a James White defender until he engaged in a number of things like this, uh, and Michael Brown was one of the big ones that made me step back and say, oh, gosh, I can't do this anymore. I have to be reserved and I've gone from being reserved to being completely disinterested at this point in, in the dividing line and, and Alpha and Omega Ministries, even though James White has made some wonderful contributions to the body. And I have several of his books in my library, and they're excellent. Uh, lately, over the last few years, it hasn't been so good. And so White, now over at Apologia Church, um, defending the practice of secret recordings going on between elders and people they meet with, uh, talking about sensitive matters regarding sin. Now, I did look up limited the, the laws in Arizona, and I don't think that it's illegal to record these meetings. So it's not a violation of the law, but it is certainly a violation of Christian ethics and biblical principles. You do not record meetings with people up with their consent. You just don't do it. It's unethical. And it's a disqualifying offense. You lose complete trust. Right. Moving on to, somebody was telling me recently about uh, something a little closer to home. The fact that most Southern Baptist churches require elders and deacons to 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 vow or yeah vow i mean it's it's a vow that they will not use alcohol if they're going to serve in that position even though most of these southern baptist churches know it's not a sin to have a beer or a glass of wine yet they feel these churches feel somehow that they are entitled to draw up covenants with elders, pastors, and deacons that restrict them from something that God doesn't restrict them from. Now, this is absolutely 
no different from the Catholic restriction on marriage for their priests. It's no different at all. And if you read the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he talks about those who place commandments, extend commandments, issue commandments and mandates and statutes on people that are purely driven by the tradition of men. And he and, and he talks about forbidding certain foods, which beer and wine would be in that category, and marriage. And he calls these teachings doctrines of demons. We know this is legalism, textbook legalism, and still we engage in the practice, and it should be stopped. There's only one reason we do this, because there are certain old fundamentalist, really fundamentalist people who are legalists. And when I say fundamentalist legalists, I'm talking about the old KJV-only, Bible-thumping, wear dresses, long hair, no makeup kind of mentality in our churches um, that still have some influence, probably because they're big givers. And we're afraid of them. So we let the covenant stand. We won't change it because we're scared. We know the Bible doesn't teach it. And yet here we are, not changing it, even though we know we should change it because the Bible doesn't teach it. So we're making decisions based on the fear of man instead of the fear of God based on the beliefs and traditions of man instead of the tradition that's been handed down to us by the holy apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's embarrassing. It is utterly embarrassing. Where is the integrity of the churches? And it gets, it gets worse, folks. It gets much worse than this. It's just an annoying thing to see this. And I'm not, I don't mean to say it's not serious. It is serious. Anytime you lay restrictions on offices, you're telling a guy, here's what you're doing. You're telling a guy, look, you can't serve in this position unless you follow my rules. I know God has called you and gifted you to be an elder. God has called you and gifted you to be a deacon and that you have a desire to serve in that position. But unless you keep my rules... I'm not going to let you do what God called you to do. Really? You want to go there? Are you? What are you going to say to God? If God asks you that question right now, what would you say? Look, pastor. Look, church. Look, body of Christ in whatever city you might be in. I do not forbid deacons and elders to drink wine. And I've gifted them and I want them to serve the body. Who do you think you are to tell them that they have to keep your rules in order to fulfill my calling on their life? How dare you? We don't think that way, though, folks. We don't think that way. We presume on God. We think we have a right. To we think this is wise. Look, it is never wise to command people to do things that God didn't command them to do. It's never wise to withhold part of the divine truth of Scripture from somebody because you don't think they can handle it. 
Are you going to trust the Holy Spirit to manage that child of God? He belongs to God. He belongs to the Holy Spirit, the one who brings us the truth, the Spirit of truth. You don't think he can keep them? Who do you think you are? Sorry, I'm upset and I'm annoyed by what I see going on in the churches and the obvious attitudes, these behaviors that we see in the body of Christ and even in the leaders in the body of Christ disclose to us attitudes that these men hold. It tells us how they think. And quite frankly, it's scary, it's disturbing, it's embarrassing, it's scandalous how some of these men think, who they think they are. It blows my mind. All right, I'm going to move off of this. On to another little really annoying, tiny little thing, but there's, there's going to be a debate on the subject of epistemology. I just saw an article. I'm not going to talk about the article because it is absolutely rubbish. It is a pile of poppycock, if ever there was one. Cody Leibolt's article on Ayn Rand. Absolute, complete trash. He doesn't know enough, even if there's anything decent in Ayn Rand, and I don't know that there is, this guy does not have the experience and the maturity necessary to go in and extract it without doing tremendous damage. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's too young and too inexperienced and not knowledgeable enough to actually do this, even if it's an okay practice, and I'm not convinced that it is. She was a outspoken atheist, and her philosophy lends itself perfectly to contemptuous greed that we see in America and in corporate America especially. You know, now I I I am a capitalist, but I am a a biblical capitalist, for lack of a better term. What I mean by that is that my principles, my Christian principles and values inform how I think about capitalism and where its limits are, where it makes good contributions and, and assists in the flourishing of human beings. And more importantly, more importantly than anything, where it supports the biblical ideas of just and fair trade. But in our culture, in American culture, we have the kind of capitalism where people, people here get fired in their 50s, their world turned upside down because this corporation couldn't produce $2.2 billion in profit. It only produced $2 billion in profit. And they'll fire guys here for making $100,000 a year. That's too much. Even though the guy is in those years that he's in that 
really, this is where he does most of his preparing for not being able to work any longer years. You could say retirement, but, you know. And that job gets exported overseas where somebody in India or wherever, the Philippines, Mexico, wherever, where they pay someone a fraction of what they were paying him. They get to continue to live in poverty where they're at, abstract poverty, like real poverty, not like us. And maybe not even that. But the point is they don't need to fire the guy. They have more than enough. It's greed. It's materialism run amok. There is a balance that Christians have to acknowledge. We cannot just be blind endorsers of the capitalist system in, in America. There has to be biblical governors on it where we say it, uh, against the Gordon Geckos of the world, greed is not good. Greed is an abomination. Materialism is an abomination. We all have to fight it. I have to fight it. I really, we all do. On top of this, Leibolt is going to have what I'm calling a fake debate on the subject of epistemology with his buddy Jacob Brunton. These guys are in the same ministry, joined at the hip. They believe the same things, but they're supposedly going to debate on epistemology. Now, why would you do that? Think about that for a second. Why would you do that? Why would you debate? Why would you set up this debate with someone that you agreed with. What possibly could you be really trying to do? Well, I guarantee you what you're going to try to do is you're going to straw man some positions for one thing. Because I've, I've seen enough from Jacob Brunton and Cody Leibolt to know that they love straw and they, they can't get enough of it. It's how they argue against presuppositional apologetics and, and a number of, of other things. But it's a fake debate. It's safe, folks. It's safe when you debate your buddy because you're going to sit down, you're going to rehearse everything. You're going to say this, and then I'm going to say that. and then we're... It's safe. They won't debate someone who is really capable of dismantling their foolish ideas because they're rooted in Enlightenment pagan philosophy. And they don't want that exposed. They want to try to get some press, try to get some steam, try to get some traffic, but they don't want to risk their credibility. Yeah, save. Really, that's, yeah, wow. Wow. Talk about stepping up to the plate and really having some guts. Right? Sure. Christians and politics. Look. I get, I am tired of this. I keep saying it over and over and over again. I am conservative in my political views because, even though I'm not a registered Republican or Democrat, because I think that where the gospel is concerned, where the worship of Jesus Christ is concerned in this nation, that that document called the Constitution's was a pretty good idea. It's pretty good. I like it. I like the fact 
that I can go out in public with my Bible and have Bible studies at coffee shops without being told to leave or without being arrested or fined. I like that. To me, that's a good thing. Paul asked the churches to pray that the Word of God would would be spread quickly and multiply and be effective going out all over the place. That's what he wanted. So with that in mind, do you think if Paul had a choice, he would have preferred a a repressive government that didn't allow for freedom of religion, the freedom to practice your faith beliefs openly without hindrance? You think he would have wanted that? Or would he have rather had a government that would throw you in jail, that would shut down your seminaries effectively because you won't admit homosexual perverts in, that would threaten your churches because your pastor stands up and preaches a sermon, an honest, direct, transparent sermon on the wickedness of homosexuality. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often anymore. Not even in the best of churches. It's just not happening because our guys have lost their balls and and they're losing them by the dozens every day because of what's going on in the culture. We're finding out who the men of God really are who will stand up and thunder the word of God as if nothing has changed. Just be completely oblivious to the shifts in the culture and just continue to preach with the same conviction today that they preached with 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah, not happening. The number of godly men, the number of truly godly men isn't shrinking, okay? It's just being exposed. We're able to see now more clearly who the godly men really are and who the cowards are. We're able to see that. The lines are being drawn. We're now able to look out there and listen to them and listen to how they preach. You think John, John MacArthur has not eased up even a little bit on his views on women preachers, homosexuality, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, a, a young earth, you name it. He hasn't backed up an inch. It is as if it's 1960. Or 70, whenever he started preaching. And that's the way it should be. Finally, I'm going to close with this. I'm going to come back to this slavery issue. People think when I say that slavery, that the Bible does not condemn slavery as immoral. They think I'm defending slavery. I'm not. I'm not defending slavery. That's not my interest. My fear is that too many people are going to realize far too late that I was never defending slavery and that I was always defending Christianity. I was always defending the Bible. Because here's the disjunctive. This is simple logic. Simple. Really simple. Either slavery is moral or Christianity is false. If slavery 
We'll, we'll, we'll do the hypothetical. If slavery is immoral, Christianity is false. So you have to pick. Are you going to affirm that slavery is a moral practice? If you do, you can then affirm that Christianity is true. But if you, like the rest of these numbskulls, are going to claim that slavery is immoral, you are also going to have to accept the fact that Christianity is false. So, 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 so maybe, maybe I said it wrong at the beginning. I can't remember how I said it a second ago. You have two options. It is either slavery is immoral or Christianity is true. Flip it around. Slavery is moral or Christianity is false. The point here is that Christianity, the Bible, the divine revelation of God, God speaking to mankind, to his church, to his elect, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, had ample opportunity to clearly condemn the practice of slavery, a practice that existed from the beginning of the Bible being written to the end of the Bible being written. It the Bible was written in every culture in which the Bible was written, slavery existed, and it was brutal in every single culture. Don't think for one second that ancient slavery wasn't immoral. There were things about ancient slavery that maybe may not have made it as bad as what you see in some of the Atlantic slave trade uh, some of the events of the Atlantic slave trade in some cases, but for all intents and purposes, when you compare the two, they're both heinous. They're both immoral. You cannot say ancient slavery was moral and the Atlantic slave trade was immoral. Part of the reason is because the Atlantic slave trade had a has degrees of behavior inside it that some would have been extremely evil, about as depraved as you could get almost, and others would have been noble even, perhaps, when you look at the behavior. When you blanketly say slave owners, period, just slave owners, that group, that whole group, were saw African Americans as inferior, that is absolutely not true. That is a bald-faced lie. And it has nothing to do with my argument about slavery. Of course, it was wicked for masters to have sex with their female slaves or their male slaves. It's wicked. Evil. It's wicked for them to rape them. It's wicked. Lynching is wicked. Those things are wicked. No one who has Christ in them would ever condone those behaviors. But just because you say or hold the position, slavery itself is not immoral, does not mean that everything a slave owner does 
is justified or moral. Kidnapping would have been condemned. You don't go take a slave, a man who is a free man, as a slave. That is clearly immoral. The practice between America and African nations of selling slaves is far more nuanced than people want to think. So think about this. Let's just, this slave has been a, a criminal. A lot of slaves were criminals, not all of them. Some of them prisoners of war. Some of them owed debts they could not pay. Some of them were criminals. Let's just say you owe a debt you can't pay, and in your system you go into slavery when that happens, or you get put in jail because you can't pay. You, you, you got to pay your debts. You, I mean, otherwise it's stealing. So if you're in prison, you're in jail. You don't have the ability to pay back. What is the, what is the system going to do? Well, if the American guy comes over and has money and he can pay the debt you owe, now, you're going to have to go with him because you belong to him. You work it off with him. And in American slavery, that was a lifetime. That was for life. This idea that most slaves were kidnapped is foolish. There was a tiny percentage of kidnapping raids that went on. They went on. They happened. And they were wrong. So don't think. These, these, these are poisoning the well arguments. The point I'm making is simply this, guys. If you buy into the fact uncritically to just blanket condemn slavery, period, you're going to have a problem with the Bible because the next time you encounter an atheist, you're going to have to explain why the Bible doesn't call slavery immoral. Why? The Apostle Paul wrote to Christian slave owners and did not tell them to free their slaves. Answer that answer that. We've already agreed slavery is immoral and we see clearly your Bible doesn't condemn it. The, the holy book of the Christians does nothing to condemn slavery. Now what? I'll tell you what's going to happen, folks. Once this is this idea, and it's almost there right now, once this idea of slavery is immoral is uncritically, uncritically accepted by everybody, the next move is going to be to undermine the text. That's the only way to make slavery. That's the only way to make these two statements cohere. Slavery is immoral. Christianity is true. That's the only way. You have to end up going to the text and rejecting the values of the Apostle Paul and Peter and even Jesus because Jesus never condemned slavery. Paul told slaves, inserted Peter, to obey their masters, even the mean ones. What are you going to do with that? This isn't to excuse vile, filthy behavior, ungodly behavior of, of slave owners in the Atlantic slave trade. That's not why I make this argument. I make this argument from a purely apologetical standpoint. If you go down this path, somebody's going to use it to impel Christianity, and you're going to be left standing flat-footed without an answer when they do. Good luck. You're going to get your lunch 
eaten. All right, I'll stop there. Stop with the rant there. As to the song that uh, opens up the rant, uh, yeah, it's a humorous poke in the eye to all those social justice guys. Uh, I love to I love to do that. I love to just make fun of the stupidity that I see going on. Um, if you think it's a character flaw and it's really bad at me, well, then just pray for me. I don't think it's that. We'll just have to agree to disagree. All right. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Keep the faith. Stay in the fight. Continue to proclaim the gospel. Continue to be the light of the world that our Lord and Savior has called you to be. Stand firm on the truth. Don't apologize. Don't back up. Continue to thunder God's truth because Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Amen. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com